Welcome to My Marvellous Melbourne, a podcast on Melbourne's history with Professor Andy May and the Melbourne History Workshop. In the next three short episodes of My Marvellous Melbourne, we'll focus on three individuals who might not be household names in the history of Melbourne. I'll find a fireman in the Melbourne General Cemetery in Carlton. Marie Catherides goes looking for James Patrick Main, an ex-convict who once owned land in Nidri, where Marie now lives. But first, Henry Rees listens out for Amy Williams, the woman in black in Flinders Street. myself thinking often of Amy Williams. From the winter of 1926 to the autumn of 1927, if you walked down Flinders Street, you would encounter a unique sight and sound, a sound with a fascinating and tragic story attached to it. Every day, on the steps of St Paul's Cathedral, sat a middle-aged Englishwoman named Amy Williams. She was known locally by a more dramatic name, though. She was the Woman in Black. Wrapped up tight in several layers of clothing to keep out the cold, and wearing a pair of heavy, dark glasses to cover her eyes, in all weathers, Amy Williams would sit, hunched over on the cathedral steps. Her dignity, even in spite of her poor circumstances, was plain to see. What was she doing here? Today, we might describe her as a busker, rather than a mendicant or a beggar, as she was known in the parlance of the time, for she made music for money. In front of Amy Williams sat a cheap, wind-up gramophone, She would crank this machine up and set a rusty needle to a shellac record, and then out would come what one newspaper report called the tiniest wisp of a melody. In this manner, Amy Williams would play record after record on her talking machine, day in, day out. Even though the rain rusted her needles and spoiled some of her records, she kept at it. One newspaper had this to say about Amy Williams. Amid the roar of the traffic, her gramophone has played on even though only occasional notes penetrated through the air. Another report followed a similar sentimental tone. On bitter nights, when Flinders Street is swept by wind and rain, she sits on the wet pavement, bending over the wheezy gramophone with its horn like a child's paper spill, and a box containing a few pennies beside her, coaxing out feeble melodies that are hardly heard above the swish of the rain. For a year or so, she was well-known, an everyday presence in the city soundscape, even if a small one. Remember that in the mid-1920s, as now, this was one of the busiest street corners in all of Melbourne, a crucial transport corridor, a bottleneck for the flow of people that came in and out of the city. Thousands heard Amy Williams' gramophone every day on their way to or from the office, the church, the building site, or the shops. We have only one photograph of her, from a sensationalist article that carries the rather shouty title of Melbourne's Richest Beggars, Genuine Mendicants and Frauds. This juicy piece, purporting to be a scandalous expose of Melbourne's homeless, 
was published in the popular nationalist newspaper Smith's Weekly, one of the most vivid points of access to Australian public opinion in the 1920s. Reading Smith's Weekly is a real adventure, and I encourage you to check this spicy paper out on Trove. In the grainy phonograph, Amy Williams is crumpled and small, and her face is veiled. This is a textbook representation of a pathetic, disempowered figure, and it comes straight out of a long, middle-class tradition of urban adventurism. Were it not for the modern gramophone that sits in front of her, we could imagine this image appearing in the pages of one of those famous Victorian flaneurs who made a career out of speaking for the outcasts of darkest London. From the novels of Charles Dickens, to the journalism of Henry Mayhew, to the lurid griminess of W.T. Stead's Pall Mall Gazette. This is a poignant and arresting image and tale, but what more can we learn about the life of this so-called lady of the gramophone? Her tale is an object lesson in the sheer breadth of popular interest in recorded sound by the 1920s, but her story also carries the more powerful lesson that, in Melbourne's jazz age, the good times were not shared by all. The depression was just around the corner, and... In a society with minimal welfare provisions and with the social security system structured around male breadwinners, women like Amy Williams, the widowed mother of a small child, could find themselves in real danger if they came upon hard times. Amy Williams is an example of one of those figures that slips between the cracks of different kinds of historical record. It is easier to track down the rich or famous, or the institutionalised, the imprisoned, or the so-called insane. But the trail runs cold very quickly for this intriguing gramophone busker. Researching her life gives us a lesson in humility. We can't know everything about the past, but I think we owe it to Amy to take a serious look at her life. We mainly learn about Amy Williams from a handful of articles about her in the mainstream press. The first one was the scandalous expose in Smith's Weekly that I mentioned earlier. The other major source of information about her life was a series of articles in the Melbourne Herald, a popular daily newspaper. So this is what we know of Amy Williams' life story. Originally hailing from Birmingham, the young Amy Williams and her husband and young son migrated to Melbourne around 1924. They paid their own passage out. We could describe the family as members of what was known then as the respectable working class. Amy's father was an upholsterer, and like many women of her generation, she took pride in her work experience in the burgeoning retail sector. But hard times would soon hit. Upon arrival in Australia, Amy's husband fell ill and could not work. The family's savings soon dwindled. Amy couldn't find work in any of the drapery stores in Melbourne, so she took to doing laundry work instead. The damp conditions took their toll on her health, and she too fell ill. She was also developing cataracts and losing her eyesight. It is at this point that she told the Melbourne Herald that she bought a gramophone with her very last two pounds. Smith's Weekly claimed instead that the talking machine and records were borrowed or donated. We cannot verify this either way, but in any event... Her career as a gramophone busker began as a gesture of desperation, but also a creative response to a grim situation. Things went from bad to worse, though, and her husband died in his sleep in November 1926. The bereaved Amy Williams soldiered on with her gramophone, even though a doctor had advised her that spending so much time out in the open air was negatively affecting her health. She relied on the kindness of strangers who became familiar with her and her sad tale. One man gave her a halfpenny every day, and another donated three pence to her every day at 6pm, perhaps on the way home from work. Eventually, her sister in London sent out some money to pay for a return passage to London, and the balance of the fare was made up by the Charity Organisation Society, a prominent relief organisation in the city. 
Leaving her old gramophone behind, she departed for home. Amy Williams spent most of the trip under the care of the ship's doctor. But alas, her misfortune was far from over. Upon arriving in London in July 1927, she was shocked to find that her sister had recently died and she had no friends or family to stay with. Writing to a Melbourne friend, she began to wish that she was back at home. At least she had her gramophone then. By this stage, news of the tragic woman with the gramophone was making front-page news in the Melbourne Herald. Wealthy philanthropists began to send cheques to the paper, striving to raise the funds to ship Amy back to Melbourne. By August 1927, nearly five pounds had been raised. This is a considerable sum of money for this time. Finally, in late April 1928, news came that, with the help of her local vicar, Amy Williams had nearly raised the funds to pay for her passage back to Australia. Her health was failing fast, though, and the Antipodean climate would do her the world of good if she could get here in time. But this is the last we hear of Amy. The trail runs cold. Her triumphant return never captured public attention. I suspect that she didn't make it, and finally succumbed to her illness. And with little ceremony and so many questions left unanswered, Amy Williams thus leaves the historical record. this happen? What structural factors led Amy Williams to the steps of St Paul's Cathedral? Couldn't someone help? This story tells us much about what could happen to those who fell through the gaps in the system. At this time in Australia's history, there was as yet no unemployment benefit or state housing commission. Voluntary associations and community organisations provided the bulk of the work of ameliorating the conditions of the disadvantaged and distressed. While they occupied a prominent position in the 19th century, though, at this stage, the voluntary relief organisations suffered from a permanent funding and staffing crisis. What was the basis then for Australian welfare? In the Federation era, Australia was internationally renowned for being a so-called working man's paradise. It was more progressive than many other nations when it came to provision for working families, with the concept of a living wage for families enshrined in the iconic Harvester Judgment in 1907. Protective tariffs were put in place to ensure that local industries provided for plentiful employment, and direct payments were available for those who were no longer able to work. Aged and invalid pensions were introduced in 1908 and 1910, respectively. This was a means-tested system, funded from general taxation, but with a strong moralistic bent about it, about the value of work and about who was deserving and undeserving. Then, as now, national elites claimed that the best form of welfare was a job. The social compact was predicated just on that, families and full employment. But what about Amy, a widow with a dependent child? There's no male breadwinner in sight here. The influx of returned servicemen as well into Australian society following the Great War prompted the development of a parallel welfare system to look after veterans, but this also put further strain on general welfare funding. So while our collective memory of the 1920s is dominated by images of opulence and jazz-age splendour, the turbulent interwar years were also a period of stagnation in Australia's welfare system. 
It would take the Depression and the Second World War before Australia's social security system was substantially remade to accommodate some allowance for widows and deserted wives, dependent children, the sick and the unemployed. Universal healthcare, as we know, was still generations away as well. And it mustn't be forgotten, lest we moderns pat ourselves on the back too much, that this plaintive tale of the humanity of a vulnerable young woman experiencing illness, disability, single parenthood, bereavement and housing insecurity is an all-too-familiar story even today. Despite all Australian governments committing in 2008 to a strategy to halve national homelessness rates by 2020, homelessness has been on the rise. The 2016 census showed a 14% increase in homelessness since 2011, well ahead of the national population growth rate. A 2016 study by the City of Melbourne showed a more than 200% increase in rough sleeping over the same period. The number of Australians at risk of homelessness and experiencing housing insecurity and rental stress is also rising. So, for a brief while, Amy Williams derived some agency, some sense of personal meaning and power, even among a life beset with the most extreme of hardships, from recorded sound. How did her world sound? Let's think about this more deeply now. Melbourne was alive with music in the 1920s. Just a couple of blocks away, on that fashionable stretch of Collins Street between Swanston and Elizabeth Streets, next to the Block Arcade, Amy Williams could have walked through the doors of Allen & Co into the beating heart of music in Melbourne. The finest imported and locally manufactured instruments, sheet music, music lessons, concert tickets to the city's best theatres, drop-in visits from touring stars, so-called popular concerts on Saturday evenings, and, of course, countless gramophones and records. Allen's had it all, and the 1920s were the music traders' heyday. The contrast to the steps of St Paul's Cathedral was pretty stark. You could hear gramophones playing everywhere on the streets of Melbourne in the mid-1920s too. This was the high watermark of the gramophone industry before the onset of the Great Depression. Australia, by this time, boasted four state-of-the-art factories that produced millions of gramophone records annually. By 1925, the sound recording trade was proudly boasting that over one million gramophones had been sold in Australia. As I calculated in my PhD thesis, which was the first cultural history of sound recording in Australia... This amounts to roughly one gramophone for every three households. We're dealing here with a truly mass phenomenon. In 1927, the same year that Amy Williams set up camp outside St Paul's, the Trades Index of the Sands and McDougall Directory records that there were 21 independent dealers in gramophones and records trading in the Melbourne grid alone, let alone the suburbs. And this is not including the Maya Emporium and other modern department stores that sprung up in this decade. Many of these also stocked talking machines and records. The big gramophone companies also encouraged their dealers to blast records all day to attract customers and show off their wares. The streets were alive with competing sounds. Basically, if you were to take a stroll down Swanston or Collins or Flinders Street in 1927, you would be navigating a soundscape that was completely different to that of a generation earlier. All kinds of music and sound bumped up against each other. The latest hits fresh from Tin Pan Alley, devotional music, the jaunty sounds of American jazz, English heart songs, grand opera, Dame Nellie Melba, you name it. The gramophone was ubiquitous in Melbourne. In fact, it was so prominent that in December 1926, 
Mr. F.J. Ray, the director of the Melbourne Botanical Gardens, placed a ban upon talking machines playing in his gardens. No more jazzy picnics under any circumstances. This was the loud, busy world that Amy Williams was part of in her own small way. So what kind of records did the woman in black actually play on her gramophone? What was her musical taste like? What was her contribution to the soundscape of the city? Well, her taste fits firmly into its time. Early gramophone listeners enjoyed a mishmash of musical genres. Walking past the cathedral steps on your evening commute, Amy's gramophone might have taken you straight to the grand concert hall, or to the parlour piano in your childhood drawing room, or to the glitzy crush of bodies in a modern dance hall. Perhaps this was worth a penny or two to brighten your afternoon. Amy Williams' favourite song was the plaintive 19th century British hymn Onward Christian Soldiers, first set to music by Arthur Sullivan. She also loved to play numbers from the wildly popular opera Cavalleria Rusticana, composed in the 1890s by Pietro Mascagni. She finished up each night by playing La Marseillaise and God Save the King, in case any listeners were in doubt of her patriotic credentials. But she also dabbled in the world of popular music. She particularly loved the show tune California Here I Come, from the 1921 Broadway musical Bombo. Al Johnson's 1924 recording of this jaunty, homesick ditty is a classic, and we can almost imagine Amy Williams escaping the cold wind for three minutes at a time, dreaming of home while listening to this song's relentlessly upbeat lyrics. When the wind freezes, winds are blowing, and the snow is starting in the fall, then my eyes turn westward knowing that's the place that I love best of all. California, I've been blue since I've been away from you. I can't wait till I get going even now. I'm starting in the call. California, here I come, right back where I started from, where flowers of flowers Join us next time when Marie Cantharides tells the story of James Patrick Main, an ex-convict from Scotland who ends up as a builder in Melbourne. My Marvellous Melbourne is a production of the Melbourne History Workshop in the School of Historical and Philosophical Studies at the University of Melbourne, Australia. Our thanks to Gavin Nabar at the Hallwood Recording Studio, University of Melbourne, and Andrew Batterham for our theme music. You can find episode notes, further resources, and contact details at our website, mymarvellousmelbourne.net.au. We'd love to hear from you. <laughs>